Now, this is Rough Draft for Sunday, where I run through the current version of my Sunday sermon. Last week, we looked at Alexander, Caesar, even President Donald Trump when he was in office being worshipped by this man from India. People were called gods because of the great works of power that they manifest. Um, the categories we think with today weren't exactly like the categories then. When Alexander conquers the world, well, he must be a god at such a young age. When, when Julius Caesar does, conquers Gaul, well, he must be a god at such a young age. Surely the gods are with him. Maybe a god was his father. That's, in fact, what godhood looks like. Now, last week we ended at the Transfiguration, where Jesus was glowing like the sun, and Peter wanted to put up three booths. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then when they looked around, they saw no one there except Jesus. Now, they come down from the mountain, and... Oh, I thought I took that slide out. Um, they come down from the mountain, and all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, basically tell the same stories. But Mark goes into more detail. And this is part of what's interesting, because Mark is a shorter gospel. But in many of the things that they have there, Mark's detail is richer. And Mark's detail very much looks like the kinds of things an eyewitness would remember. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teacher of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the body into a the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It, is off, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet. Now, if you remember some of the other stories we read, you can see some similarities and some patterns. Remember how Jesus takes the daughter of Jairus and lifts her to her feet. And so you see all of this play and interchange between what people are seeing and how they're interpreting it and what they're bringing forward. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind comes out only by prayer. Now, this actually becomes a very famous textual variant because some manuscripts say, it'll probably show in a little footnote in your Bible, uh, by prayer and fasting. And there's a lot of debate over this. Some believe that the and fasting was added by later copyists because they wanted to sort of emphasize some really powerful prayer. But the point is, 
the disciples couldn't do it. And Jesus did. They left that place and passed through Galilee. And here's some of the kinds of sayings that seem to be someone from there remembering what was on all of their minds as they're recounting the story. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were. And so in Mark, especially, you see Jesus always sort of harried and ducking the crowds and trying to avoid the visibility because the crowds become a major serious issue in terms of Jesus just getting around and accomplishing what he wants to. Jesus did not want anyone to know where he was because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now you remember, he just said this before. This is the second time he tells this to him. He was probably repeating it to them again and again and again, and they really didn't understand what was going, what was going on. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Also, we see this sense in the disciples where... They love Jesus, they're fascinated by Jesus, and they're afraid of Jesus. And when you look at sort of the back and forth and the dialogue and everything is Jesus that Jesus is doing, you can understand their fear. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. Now, right away, again, you see just sort of a memory where the narrator doesn't feel the need to explain, well, what house, whose house? And for, ma for many reasons, people believe this was Peter's house. Peter lived in Capernaum. And so they're kind of sneaking into town and they come into the house so that nobody will know. Now, you can see that it's a little ways of a journey. And so they had to walk it and they all walked it together. And so they get into the house and they're tired and they want to rest a little bit, but they want to keep a low profile. But on the way, Jesus is probably, he's traveling with at least a dozen, maybe as many as 70 people who are, who are walking with him. And so then he asks him, what were you arguing about on the road? You can very much imagine that Jesus is walking, and if you've ever walked with a big group, people sort of go to the front and go to the back in the big group, and they'll talk to this little group over here and that little group over there. So probably while Jesus is talking to one or two people, there's an argument going on behind him, and they really don't want Jesus to know what they're arguing about, probably because it's just beginning to dawn on them that Jesus is doing things very differently than they imagined. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And again, the whole framing of this story basically sounds like this is Peter from memory remembering what had happened because he remembers how they felt. He remembers sort of the thoughts of the group. And, and those all get portrayed here in the Gospel of Mark. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Hmm. Now that doesn't sound like much fun. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, um, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but welcomes the one who sent me. And now... Again, he does all of this with an embrace. This welcome certainly means hospitality, but it means a very warm and inviting greeting, almost a hug. And again, he's saying this in the context of a child. Now, the child in the house was probably doing chores, waiting on tables. And you see this 
There are more stories of this too, where Jesus, well, there's a child in the room. Well, why is there a child in the room with all of these people doing business? Well, you find this in the upper room um, around Jerusalem, and it's probably because the child is the child of someone who owns the room and is renting it out, and the child is doing all the work, running in, bussing tables, um, running dishes back and forth, running food back and forth. The child is busy serving everyone else. And Jesus says, do you want to be the servant? You want to be the greatest of all? Be the servant of all. You be the one bringing them all of the service. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is with us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, this is a text that I refer to actually often on the YouTube channel. This probably won't be in the, in the sermon. Because people are, were often looking for sort of an analogy for Jordan Peterson. And the answer was, he's the unauthorized exorcist of Mark 9. Well, this is the passage. And I want to I talk about this a little bit because part of the difficulty of language and culture is that you can't use language and culture and be intelligible without sort of pulling up a whole world with it. And part of the difficulty of language over time is that the world underneath the language shifts and moves. In most English translations, all the way back to the King James, it reads pretty much like this, for no one can, no one who does a miracle in my name. Now, my question for you is, when I say the word miracle, what do you think about? Most of you being thoroughly modern in terms of your modern sensibilities would might, if I asked you to describe a miracle, you might say something like um, something that breaks the laws of physics. Oh, um, that's a miracle is something that is supernatural. So there's natural and then there's supernatural. Now, people did not think in those terms back then. And so the language really doesn't work that way in terms of what Jesus was referring to. There's a whole nother world. Now, that doesn't mean that the kinds of things that Jesus was doing, healing the sick and raising the dead and performing exorcisms were just sort of normal. Well, they happened, there were exorcists around and there were healers around, but it's quite clear from the text that people believe Jesus was quite extraordinary with respect to this. And actually throughout the ages up until the modern period, these miracles were seen as proofs of how special Jesus was. But now that sort of flipped when after the enlightenment, we had a degree of skepticism about these things. And so ironically, in that flipping, there was also sort of an intensification. Jesus could do supernatural things while we do natural things. And we sort of had those two categories in mind. Now, they're not bad categories, but they sort of distort what's happening in this text. One of the things I want to point out is that in verse 39, we're talking about a man who is doing exorcisms. And then in verse 41, when you sort of get to the punchline in the old King James Version, it would say, verily, verily, I say to you. In fact, even the, even the, the narrative lectionary wanted to cut out verse 41 as if it was unimportant to what was coming. I could, in fact, read further, but for the sake of brevity, I won't. Verse 41 is actually pretty important to tie to verse 39. 
And some of you might say, well, what on earth does an exorcism have to do with giving a cup of water in Jesus' name? The exorcism is casting out demons in Jesus' name, and this person is giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. And what, in fact, does that have to do with the passage right before it, where they're arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus takes a child, embraces him, and says, this is, you want to be the greatest? This is a servant of all. Now, of course, we might very much associate greatness with the capacity to cast out a demon or perform a miracle or something like that, but Jesus here seems to set it alongside with a little boy managing the table for a bunch of grown-ups and someone giving a cup of water in Jesus' name. Why would Jesus line all of these things up together? And that, again, makes us ask the question about gods like Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar and doing things and doing miracles in Jesus' name. Well, so then you do a little bit of digging. And, well, you look at the Greek as usual because it's written in Greek, and what you discover is that, well, there's no real word for miracle in the Greek. The word that's used here is a dunamin, or sometimes people use a different form of the, a form of the noun, a dunamis. And you know that some ministries sort of take that name. Anybody who does a dunamis won't be able to, and actually the word is repeated in the next verse, the same root of the word, say anything bad in my name. And Jesus is, is clearly sort of connecting these two. The text is connecting these two together. And there's a deep irony here, of course, because remember the story before? What couldn't the disciples do? They couldn't perform an exorcism in Jesus' name. And they were trying to do it without prayer. And so that sort of brings prayer into the mix as well. Well, what does prayer have to do with these exorcisms? Well, I can't go into the whole thing, but this word dunamis, power, powers, principalities, that rings some bells for some of you. It's part of an entire worldview. And you can look in books and read about the Greek conception of power. And you look can look at the intertestamental Jewish conceptualizations of power and how, of the, how, how all of their worldview worked. One of the things that you might say is that Alexander the Great exhibited power. Julius Caesar exhibited power. This was power that was displayed and the power was so extraordinary now, again, we might say supernatural, but that, again, sort of shifts the emphasis. The power was so extraordinary, it puts him in the God category. In fact, for, for many people, centuries later, outside of the church, when they'd ask about Jesus, they might be willing to say he was a God. But to say he was a man, well, that seemed, because gods are able to do big things, and mere men are only able to do little things. And you can see that they just had different categories from what we're looking at here. So then I was curious about how and when this miracle word got put into the Bible for a dunamis. And so I went a little bit earlier, I went to Wycliffe's translation in Middle English, and that was sort of fun when you open that up. Right there in the middle, you can see, you can see Wycliffe's translation. And um, yeah, it's a little hard to read. You can sort of make out Jesus said to um, him, do not forbid him 
There is no man that doth virtue in my name. V-E-R-T-U. And we might, we might say, well, that sort of looks like the word virtue. Hmm. What is, what is the word virtue about? Well, some people know a little bit of entomology, know that virtue is sort of that ver, the dune is sort of ability and power, and the ver is also sort of masculinity and virility and potency. And so you can see where that is sort of a, a fair connecting word to the dunamis. Now, dig a little bit more. Actually, the the copy of the Vulgate that I have in my Bible software is a bit newer than Wycliffe's Middle English translation, but Wycliffe translated his version of the Bible into Middle English from the Septuagint. And so, in fact, if you look at the if you look at the Latin, and those of you who see Latin will see, oh, well, look at that. There's that same root right there. But somehow it gets translated to miracle. Well, when does that happen? Well, miracle, middle of the 12th century, is a wondrous work of God from the old French miracle, um, from the Latin miraculum. But again, you'll notice that that's not the word that was used in the Latin Bible in this text. To wonder, to be astonished, figuratively. So a miracle is just sort of a generic, surprising thing. Uh, it makes us smile. It makes us laugh. Um, the Latin Spanish word, of course, milagro, which is still in use. But that's not the dunamis. Mid-13th century as something that excites wonder or astonishment. It's sort of just the, the reaction that we have to it, the delight at seeing it. But this dunamis, this virtue, expresses a power. And now we begin to get an understanding of, wait a minute, how does the prayer, and the virtue, and, because when I say virtue, suddenly when we have a cup of water, well, that would be a virtuous thing to do. You can begin to see the concepts sort of line up in this passage. The Greek words rendered as miracle in the English Bible were sign, or wonder, and dunamis. And you begin to get the sense that maybe actually miracle isn't the best word for what Jesus is talking about. Because when Jesus says of this man, he can't do this virtue and then also won't be able to in the same way curse my name as he has exercised this virtue in my name. You get a sense that this work of power that he's done is something in alignment with God that goes sort of between prayer and and giving a cup of cold water. What does it mean to be great? Now again, we look at Alexander the Great or, or, or Julius Caesar or someone who manages to become president and, and move the cultural needle and just fascinate at least 35% of a nation, even if 55% of the nation don't like him so much. But that's, that's a work of power that has come into our midst. But is it a virtue? Now, we have to be a little careful with this because, of course, Jesus has other things to say about what gets translated as miracles. 
the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I will tell you, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, what's this about? On one hand, Jesus says of the unauthorized exorcist, leave them alone. You can't do these virtues and in the same time turn around and say something bad about me. But even just displaying these virtues doesn't necessarily qualify, if that's the way we want to think about it. And in fact, because it's this relationship with Jesus, it seems to be known by Jesus where this, this capacity for deliverance comes from. And that seems to be in alignment with the will of God. Now, Sometimes in the videos I talk about opponent processing, and that sounds fancy. I think Jordan Peterson had the easiest display of it. He said, if you want to hold your hand still for a long time, put your other hand against it. Well, why does that work? Because if you hold it here, you, your hand will begin to wobble and go this way and that way because it's just sort of standing free on itself. But if you put your other hand here and it has something to push again, it gets stabilized and calibrated and sure. Now, Jesus seems to say contradictory things sometimes, but it's partly because if you want to sort of put things within a frame, you say it's between here and here. And so you cross over and people then begin to form a picture of the opponent things together. The question is, how do you spot a disciple of Jesus? Well, they might be cleaning in the kitchen. They might be fixing a broken doorknob. They might be sitting quietly beside um, because the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand is doing. What does a disciple of Jesus look like? Now, the big hubbub in this last Super Bowl, besides the fact that the 49ers lost and a lot of people in Northern California were greatly disappointed, uh, it was a great game was this Super Bowl ad about Jesus getting us and, and all of these acts of kindness. And it's very interesting because a bunch of Christians were like, no. And it's like, well, why are you protesting a Super Bowl ad about Jesus? Isn't, isn't that the kind of thing that people really love? You know, they absolutely love it when the winning quarterback makes his speech and gives all glory to God for the victory. I mean, people, some people, the kind of people that eat that up seem to be complaining about the ad. So I did a little video of it, and here's the, here's the thumbnail for it. Um, does Jesus get us? Yes. Does Jesus make demands on us? Yes. And many of my sermons, I talk about these diverse excellencies of Jesus. How on one hand, Jesus seems so forgiving and welcoming that the morally upright people begin to think Jesus is irresponsible. And on the other hand, Jesus will say the kinds of things, like he says often in the Sermon on the Mount, that seem so absolutely demanding. People on the other side say that's unrealistic and irresponsible to demand so much of weak people. Well, how can Jesus do both? Well, Jesus exhibits both. And this, again, is what Jonathan Edwards, that's not George Washington in the picture, that's Jonathan Edwards, 
what the point that Jonathan Edwards was making about these diverse excellencies. This is what is so terrifying and fascinating and lovely about Jesus is that we usually try to strike a balance or, or opt on one side or the other. Jesus seems to bring all of this stuff that can hardly be put together, put together. Tim Keller said it this way, particularly impressive to readers over the centuries have been what one writer called an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. That is, in him we see qualities and virtues we would ordinarily consider incompatible in the same person. We would never think they could be combined, but because they are, they are strikingly beautiful. Jesus combines highest majesty with greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with astonishing mercy and grace. He And he reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet entire trust in and reliance upon his heavenly Father. We are surprised to see tenderness without any weakness, boldness without harshness, humility without uncertainty, indeed accompanied by a towering confidence. Readers can discover for themselves this unbending conviction but complete approachability, his insistence on truth but always bathed in love. His power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, passion without prejudice. We see this in the story of Jesus having dinner invited to Simon the Pharisee's house. They didn't wash his feet. And then a woman comes in and starts washing his feet with her tears and drying with her hair. And then everybody threw a fit. He turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into, of course you see, everybody's looking at the woman. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. In other words, you didn't show hospitality. You didn't welcome. Remember what Jesus said about welcome? But she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now the disciples are squabbling. They want status. They're looking to cash in on Jesus' ministry. Jesus, in another story, will say to the mother of James and John, who are fighting over this, are they ready to drink from my cup? The disciples have already begun to figure out something about Jesus and greatness, and so they're a little embarrassed by what they're doing. They're embarrassed by their sharp elbows trying to get a privileged place at the trough downstream of Jesus' cup. Soon enough, they'll see. He's been telling them that. They didn't appreciate the cup they would inherit from him, at least from the perspective of this world. Embracing strangers, the servant of all. It's really hard to find Jesus if you don't know your need. And it's easy once you do. What are the small bits of Christ's diverse excellencies that you've been called to manifest? Now, obviously, the greater the range, the greater the visibility, 
But Jesus makes it pretty clear. Do you want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. Well, I can't do, what can't you do? Virtues? Pray? Give a cup of cold water? All of those things you can probably do. Do the will of your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says you should do. You might ask, what has he called you, not simply to do, but to become? Amen.